0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have clicked play on. We hope you've clicked subscribe to a podcast that deals in what we call crucible experiences. Those are those moments in life that can sometimes be failures, can sometimes be setbacks, can be tragedies, traumas, things that happen to you, things that you have a hand in maybe uh, bringing about yourself. What they have in common, though, is that they are painful and they can knock the wind out of your sails. They can change the trajectory of your life. And the reason why we talk about them on Beyond the Crucible is sort of hinted at, well, actually spelled out pretty clearly in the title of the podcast, We talk about crucible experiences to help you move beyond those crucible experiences, to learn the lessons of them and to apply those lessons to your life going forward, as we like to say in crucible leadership, so that you can pursue and grab hold of a life of significance. And with me, as always, and actually I'm with him, is more appropriate to say, because he's the host of the show and he's the architect of Crucible Leadership. He is the man who who created it all. And that is Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, uh, we've got a, uh, an excellent episode. And once again, I'm going to be the dumbest person on this call.
1: No, not at all, but I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. It's has got to be great.
0: Uh, the reason I say that, listener, is that both the host and our guest are graduates of the Harvard Business School. And our guest today is Dr. Joseph Badaraco. And Joseph Badaraco is the John Shad Professor of Business Ethics at Harvard Business School. He has taught courses on business, ethics, strategy, and management in the school's MBA and executive programs. Uh, Badaraco is a graduate of St. Louis University, Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and Harvard Business School where he earned an MBA and a DBA. He has written several books on leadership, decision-making, and responsibility. These include defining moments when managers must choose between right and right, leading quietly An unorthodox guide to doing the right thing, questions of character, the good struggle, and managing in the gray. His latest book, Right here, if you're watching us on YouTube, is Step Back, and that was published this month. The subtitle to Step Back is How to Bring the Art of Reflection into Your Busy Life. These books, very interestingly, have been translated into 10 languages, which gives you an idea of the wisdom that's out there and how far spread that wisdom is going. So, Warwick, I know you're excited about a couple of the books that uh, Joe has written.
1: Absolutely, well Joe, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Um glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh obviously, you know, uh we have have a business school in common. I was there late 80s and I didn't realize until I looked at your bio we also have Oxford in common because I did my undergrad there. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a Rhodes scholar. I was most Australians when they go there are graduate students, but I guess I, my dad and a few other relatives went there, so I went as an undergrad, so That was kind of fun too. But um, yeah, so I love, you know, the strands in your book. Uh, We're going to focus particularly on step back, the art of reflection, which I love to get into because I'm a very, if not hyper-reflective person. So I may not be your target market because reflecting is like breathing. It's good to reflect. (laughs) We actually have to do stuff too, which I know you agree with. But leading quietly, I also found, which we want to spend a little bit of time before we get to the main event, step back because I also found that fascinating. But before we get to leading quietly, then step back, tell us just briefly about, you know, uh, Joe Badaracco and kind of, not all the details, but kind of what led you to the path that you're in about leadership and a particular philosophy of leadership. It's not necessarily the big heroes, but it's the incremental. So is there a story behind kind of your your the themes that are in your books?
2: Well, uh, first, all of the books do focus on Issues of ethics, moral philosophy, very broadly defined, and uh, in very practical terms. So I'm not a theoretical-minded philosopher, you know. And, and as you know, Mark, Harvard Business School aims to train people who are going to take responsibility and do things and get them right. And so I've been at the school for 35 years. I have so I liked. The practical focus when I went there as an MBA and I've enjoyed that both in the teaching I've done and in my writing. The other thing I guess I'd emphasize is that I tended to look for uh, plausible but somewhat unusual perspectives on issues that are of importance to a lot of people. So leadership is an example. I think the conventional view that most people have of leadership is kind of heroic leadership. And it's often based on uh, political, social leaders. But when you think about what happens in most organizations, most businesses, you rarely find people who are sort of versions of Dr. King, Gandhi, Churchill, pick your favorite heroic leader. So the unorthodox perspective I wanted to look at was to see whether there were other kinds of leadership that you might discern. If you put the heroic model to the side. And I think that's something I've done in most of the things I've written. Now, my wife might say, I've actually written the same book over and over again. (laughs) But uh, I have tried to take an unorthodox view and and a pragmatic view of questions.
1: And that's why I found, and that's a particular, obviously, theme of leading quietly. I found that fascinating because I grew up on the or in the other side. I mean I grew up in a the listeners know a very wealthy background in Australia, a hundred and fifty year old family media business that had the equivalent of New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, very well respected, the thought leaders. But my dad, who probably he wasn't the greatest businessman, he was a good journalist. He actually loved philosophy and history and religion in a broad sense. So I have some a smattering of understanding, but not nearly the level that you would or my dad. But he actually had a heroic view of leadership. So I was brought up on the other side of mm-hmm. you know great leaders. Often back then, because of the times they lived in, great men doing great things. Whether it's, yeah, you know, Churchill, Roosevelt, or he particularly loved English heroes, so Wellington and Nelson, all of that. And I think probably as you dig into them, as you in leading quietly, use the example of, um, of Lincoln, where he actually did some pragmatic things we don't often think about. You just tend to think of the big hero. But So that was the view of leadership I had. And unfortunately, I, I wished I'd read your book or I wished it'd been published because I obviously was published in the early 2000s. I did my $2.25 billion takeover in 87. So 13 years too early or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the classic heroic, I mean, it, I'm not saying you should do this, but it was a classic case study of what not to do and why your books and your philosophy makes so much sense. I really, I help prove your case, not that you need more proof. So, you know, I I, I kind of had this idea of this heroic leader trying to bring back the company to the ideals of the founder who's a person of great faith and, you know, great temperament, uh, have it be, you know, fair, man, run well, did this massive billion-dollar take, and it failed spectacularly, as listeners know, too much debt, it, you know, calls a lot of family friction. So there's a lot of, you know, you, you say in one of the articles that was written about the time of the book, We Don't Need Another Hero, a Business Review article. And I love this phrase, in a sense. It feels so apropos to me. It talks about quiet leadership being practical, effective, and sustainable. And, and this is the line in, in the article that you wrote. It says, quiet leaders prefer to pick their battles and fight them carefully, rather than go down in a blaze of glory for a single dramatic effort. Well, that was me. I went down in a blaze of glory in a single dramatic effort. If ever there was a case study of why your books matter and why don't do the opposite, it's me. So when I'm reading your book, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense, I'm afraid. He's right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to to I mean,
1: I'm a case study, which proves your point in so many ways. So (laughs) there you go. But so talk a bit about Obviously, I do get it, but uh, talk about why quiet leadership is really a more sustainable and better approach, even for dramatic leadership over the long run. Why is, why is that a better approach than my kind of, you know, guns all blazing, single heroic, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, sure. I'll answer your question just a, a brief preface. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from heroic leaders. And children should learn about them. And you learn about virtues like courage and self-sacrifice and commitment to larger goals and ideals. So I wasn't for a moment trying to dismiss or demean that approach to leadership. Just to say that, and this is where I'll answer your question directly, for most people, the world is a complicated and uncertain place, and they don't have a lot of power. And there are a lot of people around them have a lot of power and some are using it well, some are using it badly, some are using it in crazy ways. And it's in that world where you wanna try to make a positive difference without taking too much money out of the bank because you've got other responsibilities to yourself, to your family. You wanna make a difference. And it's in that world where moving incrementally, being cautious, planning, compromising occasionally are really valuable sort of characterological traits and ways of behaving. Ever since I wrote this book, I thought that someone, not me, but somebody else should write a book, that looked at heroic leaders working in their quiet moments. One example would be Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, he's renowned for many things, one of which is his I Have a Dream speech. But he might not have given the speech when he did, at the end of the march in Washington, He might not even be known for that speech if he hadn't spent a couple weeks in endless meetings with various civil rights groups who had very different images about how to organize the march, who should do what, who should say what. That was a lot of behind the scenes, practical, nitty gritty effort on his part. And uh, I think you could write a book like that about a lot of the great leaders. We focus on their inspiring moments but those are usually just mm. moments out of long campaigns of serious, daily, thoughtful, pragmatic effort.
1: Now, I, I think what you're saying is so true, because as I read the snippet that you wrote about Lincoln, and you know, I'm thinking about sort of the arc of his life. Most successful leaders the dramatic moment is set up by a lot of incremental moments, like the Emancipation Proclamation and I think it was 1863. Lincoln spent about a year trying to figure out, okay, what's the right time? It has to be when the North is actually doing well, which for the earlier part of the war, it wasn't. So timing was critical because ultimately, you know, you want to succeed and, you know, there are a few fewer things in American history more important than the abolition of slavery. So, you know, you can't get it wrong. So I, people... Don't focus enough on the small incremental acts, and you know, building alliances, and trying to find the right time, and they don't think of the lead up to the dramatic effort. I think is is your point. Yeah. It would be a good book. And I think heroic leadership. I mean, it's heroic in terms of taking on these challenges, but how they get there is often in small incremental exactly. steps. I mean, is that a fair exactly. Exactly.
2: Uh, there's one quote in the book, uh, I'm not sure where I got it, but it refers to uh, Navy pilots. So they land jet planes on mm-hmm. what apparently look like postage stamps if you're <laughs> up in the air in one of these planes and you got to <laughs> land it on this little <laughs> patch of metal. And the saying is that there are no old, bold pilots. So right. it takes a lot of practice and care and attention to detail to pull off that feat again and again and again. And I think that saying says a lot for people. And we want to make a difference, but are realists about how the world works.
1: Right. I mean, you talk about uh, nudging and, um, you know, one quote, you have quiet leadership. It's a long, hard race run on obscure pathways, not a thrilling spring before a cheering crowd. I mean, it's talk about modesty and humility one of the things I love is just the everyday cases you talk about. There's many examples. You have a woman who becomes a hospital leader. There's a guy that becomes a bank manager whose boss is, is really on his back to make cuts quickly. And he uses every trick in the book. You know, gee, i got to go to HR and legal. And, you know, because he needs to buy time to figure out what's happening. Well, that's very practical. Often we're told in the real world of leadership, if you're in middle management, to do things you don't think makes any degree of sense but saying outright no is typically not a viable path. So you just try to find ways around it. I mean, that's, I just, those case studies were extremely helpful in helping the reader understand this is what it looks like in the real world of ha- acquire leadership.
2: all the individuals in the book, and I think the individuals out in the real world are all trying to do something that they believe is important, valuable, even critical. And it's for other people, it's not for themselves. So it is a kind of morally responsible leadership, but then once they've decided roughly on what they want to accomplish, how they go about it is often uh, what I describe as quiet. The one thing I'd I'd add to uh, the very good summary you gave is that uh, a challenge of quiet leadership is, you know, the old saying is virtue is its own reward. And sometimes You know, you may feel you got where you wanted to go. You blocked something that should have been blocked. Maybe you get a little credit for it. Maybe you don't. There are people in organizations who are good at calling attention to themselves and their accomplishments. And uh, sometimes their accomplishments are kind of smaller than the amount of attention they manage to garner for themselves. And if you're operating quietly behind the scenes, you have to really be convinced that what you're doing is worthwhile. As the little passage you read said, there's nobody applauding. Often there's nobody watching. So you've got to believe in it because it can be a tough sort of lonely road.
1: Yeah. I mean, rarely will these leaders you talk about, which is most leaders go down to the history books, you know, but they know, you know, they talk about virtue being its own reward. Well, you, you kind of have to believe that. And we'll, you know, switch gears in a minute, because I do want to get to step back. But I love the fact that you talk about character, about restraint, modesty, tenacity. It just feels like at the core of these quiet leaders, there's sort of a a modesty of, I don't know everything. I want to learn from the people around me, below me, above me. I want to gather the facts. I want to try to move uh, carefully, diligently. I mean, it seems like you know, uh, investing political capital wisely, this sense of modesty and restraint seems to be at the core of these quiet leaders, you know, uh, this sort of sense of modest character.
2: Yes, and I, I'd add two practical aspects to that. So, if you're in an organization, let's say you're younger, whatever point, you want to learn to do better, it's easy to focus attention on the stars, and every organization has them. Mm-hmm. But I'd also recommend spending some time looking for people who fit the quiet leadership model and um, you really may have to look carefully because they don't stand out but -hmm. these are people who after they've been in part of an organization for a while things are better they move to another part things are better so observe them and try to see what they do and how they do it similarly if you're promoting, hiring, giving bonuses. If you got stars, you know, they've made their quota, all the rest, okay, give them their rewards, but make sure you're not overlooking people who in quiet ways, persistent ways, are really dedicated to get making the organization a better place, and give them their reward. And often give them a pat on the back too, because as I said a moment ago, uh, if this can be a somewhat lonely path.
1: Absolutely. I think of Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which obviously I know you're very well aware of. I can see some commonalities with that thinking and here because he talks about level five leaders being driven, but yet humble. And when they're asked, so what's the key to success? Well, it's not really me. It's my team. I just sit here. I don't really do a whole lot. And I mean, I don't think they're just trying to pretend to be humble. They are. So it's I find it very comforting when the data seem to show that quiet leaders are the ones, in the long run, that produce the greatest returns. I yeah. mean, I'm sure when that came out, which came out after your book, you felt like, "Gosh, this, there's, there's some." I wouldn't say validate; it kind of does, but there's some cross thinking, if you will, yes, uh, or that's aligned with what you're, what For you. For sure, and
2: in fact, I think one thing that Jim Collins used to do was he had a list of ten or fifteen. CEOs or former CEOs who had produced spectacular returns over a long period of time. And he put up the list and he'd ask people in an executive program, can anybody identify these people? And they had trouble. <laughs> and these are CEOs, typically of <laughs> exactly, large companies. Exactly, but they were <laughs> yeah. not the high visibility uh, sort of mediogenic types.
1: Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. So, As we're about to pivot to... Yeah step back. There's one more point, because I think there's some connective tissue between uh, leading quietly and step back in that article that Warwick referred to a little while ago from from 2001 that he wished was he could have gone back in time, like in Back to the Future and <laughs> read before the takeover. But you said something, Joe, in that article that I really think fits into the crucible leadership context and what we're going to talk about next. This is a, a, a line from that 2001 article, We Don't Need Another Hero. Since many big problems can only be resolved by a long series of small efforts, quiet leadership, despite its seemingly slow pace, often turns out to be the quickest way to make the corporation and the world a better place. What I love about that in a crucible leadership context is two things. One, it says many big problems can only be resolved. And the idea of a crucible is a big problem in someone's life. It is a heart-stopping moment. So to come back from your crucible, there is going to be a series of small decisions, a small learning, small applications you have to do. And then the, the back end of that quote about making the corporation and the world a better place. Everything that crucible leadership is about, everything Warwick is about, is guiding people toward leading a life of significance. And that's defined by... By crucible leadership, as a life on purpose that that makes the world a better place. So I just think it's fascinating that that idea of leading quietly can be such a critical part. Needs to be such a critical part about how we learn from our crucibles and bounce back. Is that fair, Warwick?
1: Yeah, I mean one of the things we talk about in crucible leadership, it's leading at all levels, from a large you know, CEO of a of a for profit or you know executive director of a nonprofit or a community leader that maybe want to reclaim their park and make it safe for local neighborhood kids. You know, it's leading at all levels. And yeah, I mean, there's most leaders you've never heard of, but it's it's the character and the sort of combined with the the drive of a vision that's larger than themselves, that's focused on others, that's really the leaders we love to focus on. So um, let me shift gears here, because your most recent book, I also found really fascinating, this whole concept of step back and and reflection. And as listeners probably would know, I'm a very reflective person by nature. I'd almost say <laughs> hyper reflective. I mean I, I, I do actually get things done, but I find reflecting just my natural mode I'm always thinking. So I'm probably not exactly the target market because I have no trouble finding time to reflect. I just do it like breathing. You know, if I'm in the shower, if I'm walking, if I'm going upstairs, I mean, I'm always reflecting on something. But most people are not like me. Uh, It's probably fortunate. So talk about this book. I I find it fascinating because your average business or organizational leader is going a million miles an hour. As you point out, technology is just uh, gets ever more complex and quicker every day. Few people have time to go to a monastery for a month or uh, someplace and mountaintop in Tibet. I mean, that's just not something that people do or even want to do. So, talk about why you wrote "Step Back" and this, the whole art of reflection. Uh, what kind of prompted you to to write this book?
2: Well, I can't point to a particular catalyst. However, probably like you and like a lot of my colleagues and a lot of people listening, you know, we advise other people to reflect. Somebody's talking to us about a difficult issue and we feel we should reflect and typically feel we should be doing more of it than we do. But no one who gives us advice to reflect typically says what reflection is, how to do it, how to find time to do it. And so I simply wanted to see what reflection meant for people who were busy and couldn't, as you said, you know, go off to, up to the mountain for a month or something like that. So the first part of the research was simply exploratory. So I started interviewing people who were on the HBS campus, in most cases for our executive programs. Come to my office for an hour. And the interesting thing is that they would, in many cases, come in and sort of apologize. They'd say, look, I'm sorry, I just don't think I'm the right person because I don't really do much (laughs) reflecting. And so we would talk a little bit and I'd say, well, what do you think (laughs) reflection is? And are there any times you do a little bit of it? And so we kept the conversation going for a while. And then what I did with the early interviews was I arranged to meet them again for another interview about two weeks later. And in the middle, I sent them an email and I said, did you do anything in the last hour or so that looked like reflecting? And what they found was that while they didn't go off for an hour every morning and reflect on a biblical passage and then write in a journal, they were reflecting at lots of different grief points over the course of a day or a week. In some ways, Warwick, a little bit like your description of yourself, you know, taking a walk in the elevator, taking a shower. So I continued the interviews. I felt I was finding something interesting. I ultimately after interviewing about 100 people, said it's time to write something down. And what the book does is contrast what I call mosaic reflection with classic reflection. Classic reflection is you've got a lot of time, it's deliberate, you find a place that's tranquil, you talk about the big issues, You know, you think about the big issues in life. Mosaic is you do it when you can, you do it fairly often, it's brief. And the book is essentially advice on how to do mosaic reflection well, how to find time to do it by looking, for example, at how these very busy people found time to do it, and then using the time well. And I based that on uh, readings in, of classics about reflection. So the classics really define what reflection is. And the interviews with these busy people were, you know, showed me a lot of different ways to find time to do it. So that's how the thing ultimately came together. But to answer your original question work, when I started out, you know, if the first 10 people said, you know, I have no idea what it is and I never do it, that would have been the end of the project. <laughs> but there was, this, there was this interesting thread and I kept pulling on it and found more and more.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's that's true. I mean, even for me, who is about a reflective person as exists, I think, I mean, a lot of things I'm poor at, but Rightly or wrongly, I'm just wired to reflect. But when I think about it, I think your concept of mosaic reflection, not only is it more efficient, I think it's also more effective because I'll often, I'll be thinking about something and what I typically do is, yeah, I'll, I'll reflect. But like you talk about in the book, I'll talk about to relevant people. If it's on my team, hey, we're thinking about this new direction. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? I'm both an external processor and an internal I have to have both. And what I find is I talk to people, gather information. I mean, it's right out of your book without, without even, I didn't realize it um, until I read your book. And then I process and then I reflect. But gathering the information allows me to reflect better and then I move and I act and new evidence and new data and new experiences happen and then I reflect again. So if I was on a mountain reflecting for a month, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it feels less effective than ask, act, investigate, examine, reflect. Do you know? It just feels a more effective way to get deeper. It sounds counterintuitive. Does that make sense? It makes
2: uh, it makes a lot of sense. Not just to me, but to a number of the people I interviewed, who said that uh, they're making decisions, a lot of little ones, occasional big ones. They know people are observing them, drawing inferences from what they do, what they don't do. They need to stop frequently, if only briefly, and try to calibrate and see if they can get that right. And these brief moments of stepping back are a valid and uh, cumulatively quite important form of reflection. There's also, by the way, I interviewed a few people who said they had tried the go to the mountain approach. And, you know, are just sitting for half an hour meditating. It's just drove them crazy. <laughs> they, could, they couldn't they could do right. it.
1: So <laughs> It's funny you say that because even me, I have no desire to go to a mountaintop or a monastery and sit there and reflect forever. And I'm very reflective, but it's like, it just drives me nuts. Maybe I'm not patient enough, but you know, some people I do do that and good for them. I, I think I people
2: in my experience and in the interviews, they're just different. And one of the pieces of advice right at the beginning is, if you want to do a better job of reflection, over a couple days or a week, observe yourself and just notice the times when, without making an effort, you sort of step back, you pause, you think things over a little bit. might be for some people it's driving in the car, exercise, taking a shower, a conversation with the right person in the book had their own mosaic pattern of when and how they reflected and they were different so you really have to observe yourself and see what works for you
1: and talk about some of the methods because you have particular methods in here like piggyback reflection having the right conversation downshift mental meandering talk about just practically so that the listeners understand. Talk about some of the techniques. Sure. Some might fit for some, some may not, but what are some of the techniques that you uh, Well, there suggest? was a
2: vast variety, but there were some <laughs> patterns. So as I mentioned a moment ago, a surprising number of people reflected while they were driving. This was, you know, uh-huh. slow traffic, bumper to bumper, but they had ways of dictating thoughts. Some of them assigned themselves questions before they got in the car, turned the radio off. One guy kept the notepad So this wasn't just seeing what comes to your mind while you're driving. This was somewhat systematic for some people while they exercise. I mean, in a couple of cases they would say, I've got something I want to think through. I'll just sort of run for 10 minutes, clear my mind, and then I'll try to come back to it. See what occurs to me. See if I can make any progress. A surprising number of people, if you view reflection as a solitary activity, and that really is the classic model, said there's somebody in my life or somebody at work, and when I'm with this person, there's just kind of a different climate in the room of some mutual understanding, trust, and I can talk aloud, make some progress. So those were some of the mainstream approaches. People also, in many different instances, would write, but that conjures up writing in a journal every morning or every evening. It's not the case. Some people took notes on a computer file. Some people, every couple weeks, if they came across a good quotation, would write that in a little book. Others did sort of keep journals. One woman who was an engineer by training, she said, when I've got a hard problem, I actually get out a spreadsheet. <laughs> and I just sort of organize my thoughts on the spreadsheet. <laughs> One guy had a big whiteboard in his office, a difficult problem. He would just doodle. He'd try to draw pictures. You know, you've got to sort of figure out what works for you. One CEO of a big company, everybody listening would recognize it, said that when he had a hard problem and just wasn't getting anywhere, he would close the door to his office and put on some of his favorite Broadway show tunes, and he mentioned a couple of them. He said he listened to them. And this was just like blasting his head to clear out everything that was in there for a while to see if he could come back to it fresh. And uh, there was just an amazing range. Of, you know, some people, it was time in a hot tub every couple of days. But they found their own pattern. And then, then you've got to spend the time well. That's the other thing I emphasize in the book. But first, you've got to find the time that works for you.
1: I mean, that's so true. I mean, I, I probably have done most of those things being a reflective person. Uh, for me, sometimes I'll come, you know, we, we might be going, as happened just yesterday, you know, potentially going in, in a slightly different direction and what we do at Crucible Leadership. And we're having a meeting and I, something was like troubling mm. me, but I couldn't really identify it at the time but I knew, okay, I need to get in touch with this rather than just say yes and plow ahead. Anytime you feel troubled or disconcerted, to me, that's a, a yellow light that says, you need to reflect in some fashion, pick yeah. your favorite tool, but don't ignore that slightly troubled spirit. So I chatted to a couple of folks on my team. And one of the things, not only do I reflect internally, but by talking to somebody else, Sometimes if it's about something with my kids or a family, I'll talk to my wife and I'll say, hey, I feel troubled, angry, fearful, and I have no idea why. Help me figure it out. And so we'll dialogue, and by dialogue, she knows me, and so she, you know, how about this, how about that? And by the time we're done, 90% of the time I figured it out. Once I know what it is, then I can yeah. figure out, okay, what, what to do about it. But certainly for me, conversations, I find with the relevant people, I find very, very helpful to figure out, okay, why am I troubled? Does that make sense? It, it kind makes of an dumb. immense
2: amount of sense. Uh, I didn't focus on the way our brains work in the book. Mm-hmm. I read a few things in passing, but our unconscious minds do an immense amount of information processing. And it's not just like applying algorithms to data. There's all sorts of stuff going on involving feelings, thoughts, images, and all the rest. And sometimes there is something trying to get out. And one of the three classic approaches to reflection used to be called contemplation. That's the old word for it. I called it downshifting. But it basically says take a break from your to-do list, from just checking off task after task, and see what's either coming up It's sort of inside you or maybe something going on around you that you're not really paying attention to and uh, see what's there. And if you find something, stay with it a little bit, but you've got to slow down. The book starts with a quotation I really like. It was from a a guy who uh, founded and continues to run a very successful private equity firm. And he says that he tells the presidents, typically, young presidents, typically, of these small companies he's invested in. So he'll be on the board and he'll meet with them from time to time. But he tells them early on that, look, if I ever come into your office and I find you with your feet up on the desk looking out the window, I'm going to double your salary. (laughs) And what he said is he doesn't want them putting out fire after fire after fire, which is the entrepreneur's life. Just take a little break, feet up, look out the window, let your mind slow down a little bit, see what comes up.
1: You know, one of the things I really love in here is you talk about some of the classic philosophers and thinkers, and you talk quite a lot about Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor, and I don't know, I think I looked it up somewhere like 160 to 180 AD. And what I find interesting, and, and listeners may not have heard of Marcus Aurelius but I'm sure, as you know, they will have, many will have seen uh, the movie Gladiator right. with yes. Russell Crowe, in which Marcus Aurelius, I think, played by Richard Harris, is featured, at least in the movie, his son became um, uh, emperor and not a particularly good one. I think at least That's in the right. movie, he, that wasn't his choice. But, and you, you write a lot about, even those who may have heard of him in his book Meditations, as you point out, he was an active... Uh, commander, if you will, in this 13-year war against the German uh, tribes, which I don't think at the end of the day, uh, you know, succeeded. He was a pretty tough one. It was one of the few ones that the Roman Empire didn't quite conquer. So he was in there in the thick of battle every day, and yet he was just very contemplative and talking about, you know, living a complete and conscious and lucid life and uh, give meaning to your entire life. and then later on you have a, a longer quote. So I found that example of Marcus Aurelius fascinating because you don't tend to think of moral philosophers, if you will, being, you know, people of action, which he was.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and I recommend to everyone listening to get a copy of Meditations. It's provided wisdom and guidance for countless people everywhere in all positions, including some very important leaders, and as you indicated work, he was running the Roman Empire, he was in northern Italy, or what subsequently became Germany, there was plotting against him back in Rome, he was fighting a war, and he managed to snatch a little bit of time every few evenings and write just a few lines, which miraculously have been preserved. But this is an example of mosaic reflection. Every few nights, just a few lines, not systematic, but he was trying to put down what he thought mattered or what was really on his mind at the time. Coincidentally, there was a plague, an epidemic raging during this time, and Aurelius may have even died Mm. of it. Historians disagree about Mm. that. But, that's another way in which there's this uncanny relevance of what he wrote to reflecting if you're really busy today.
1: You know, there's another aspect of contemplation I think about, and this will apply differently to different folks, but faith to me is is important. So there are times which I've done a journal, uh, and not recently, but you write about this in the book, about some people of faith do almost what they feel like God telling them others may, you know, think of it more broadly. And I've certainly had that experience, but, you know, I kind of do my, you know, daily devotional thing and I'm not always consciously thinking about something that I, some problem I'm grappling with, but as I said of myself in what you could call more broadly wisdom literature, even though my purpose isn't to accomplish a particular reflective objective, mm-hmm. somehow I'll just feel like this still small voice. You could call it from God, from the universe, from you know your inner self. However, your frame of reference is, but that's happened on numerous occasions. And so, applying it more broadly, whatever your way of getting centered in it—maybe it's reflecting on some other faith tradition, yoga, whatever. Whatever you feel like really centers you. That is so valuable you're not doing it for a purpose other than it calms you down and it satisfies you. But does that make sense? Like I find at a left field, it's like, I wasn't even <laughs> thinking <laughs> about this. I wasn't reflecting about it. Yeah. Where did that <laughs> thought come from? Yeah. I mean, it's just wild.
2: It, well, it makes complete sense. And it's consistent with a lot of what I heard in the interviews. What's important, though, for people who are really busy and a lot of people are even busier now as we deal with this pandemic and homeschooling or whatever's going to happen next month is making the time and finding the time, even the short fragments of time. And one woman I interviewed had a really good approach to this. She created like most of us do a to-do list every day, but part of her to-do list was a little bit of time for reflection in a way that she thought was valuable. And so, the end of the day or in the middle of the afternoon when she was checking things off her list that was something she wanted to check off and my reaction to that was that's interesting that's sort of moving beyond a to-do list to kind of a a to-live list okay and being kind of systematic people are busy easily there's a lot of distractions a lot of pressures but to try to make sure every day if possible you do something that broadens you a little bit or centers you a little bit like you were describing.
0: And to pick up on that point, it's a good time because we have, I believe I can see, I can hear the captain turning on the fasten (laughs) seatbelts sign. We're going to have to land the plane here in a little bit, but the very end of your book, Joe, the very end of your book gets to the point of why all of this is so important. And for listeners, here at crucible leadership it's why reflection is so important for you as you're going through your crucible experience this is the last three sentences in step back without reflection we drift others shape and direct us with reflection we can understand and even bend the trajectories of our lives one of the things that fascinates me about that is i never hear the word trajectory in my day-to-day existence i just don't but and I'm not sure I did it on this episode, which is funny, but in almost every episode of this podcast, I talk about crucibles as changing hmm. the trajectory of your lives. And here you're saying with reflection, we can understand and even bend the trajectories of our lives. It seems to me that in moments of hardship and pain and failure, reflection can be even more valuable. Is that true? Is that fair? I'm
2: sure it's true. Uh- only in a handful of the interviews did I hear people really talking explicitly about crucible moments. I think in many cases they were referring to them, but you know they were, weren't really comfortable being explicit about them. But those are points when reflection is absolutely critical. The only caution I would give is you've got to make sure that you're reflecting and not ruminating. And by ruminating, I mean going around on the same issues, not really making any progress. You have to have a sense that you're making some progress, not every day, not every time, but seeing things more clearly, getting a sense of things you wanna do differently. And if not, then I think you need to find some ways to break that cycle of rumination because that, that isn't reflection. And if anything, it can be kind of a diversion from the kind of reflecting you need to do.
1: I think you make a very good point, Joe. I mean, one of the things is when you're in the middle of a uh, of the pit, maybe you've either lost a business, health crisis, lost a loved one, being fired. There's all sorts of different crucibles. You're often not emotionally centered. You're not necessarily as rational as you would like to be when you're your best self, because unfortunately we're all human. Uh, so, you know, you don't want to make major life decisions when emotionally you're not at your best. So. By all means reflect but just take time you know try to get yourself started and then over time because as you advocate reflection it's not like a one and done thing just don't make major decisions uh, when you're in the midst of a uh, of a pit that's important you know, one of the things i love about that quote about you know reflection can alter the trajectory of your life is that you know i think of a book it was actually a faith based book called mission drift and it's really referring to the drift of you know, Ivy League colleges from the original founding mission and forgetting the premise of the book for a moment because some will think that's good or bad. Looking at it more broadly, no organization should drift nor individual should drift from its purpose by accident. If you want to drift, Mm -hmm. fine, but make sure you're doing it consciously, Mm -hmm. not unconsciously. And so that to me is where reflection is important. Like yesterday, I just had this sense of, okay, this direction sounds logical, this shift, but there was like a yellow light saying this could be mission drift. Mm-hmm. And so if we're gonna drift, let me make sure that I'm not just being stubborn, which I certainly can be, and not open to new ideas, which I can also be that person. But you know, that's why reflection is important because you might find over the course of ten years as CO somewhere, that you've shifted in a direction that had nothing to do with where you wanted to go. You just made a bunch of small decisions. So that I feel like is one area where reflection is absolutely critical. You want to make sure you stay on task and on vision, you know, because so often if you don't have those reflections as you yeah. walk every day, does that make it sense? Makes,
2: it makes sense. It also, I think, brings us back full circle to quiet leadership because that is a long road. Mm. It's a lot of small steps. You're buffeted by pressures. You got to make adjustments along the way. You do need to step back occasionally if you're trying to get things done in a quiet way and make sure you're still focused on the right objective, that you don't need to modify the objective, that you're kind of going, you're, you're on a path you want to be if it's a long path with a lot of uncertainty. This, by the way, was why the private equity guy tells the presidents of the companies he wants to see them occasionally with their feet up on the desk looking out the window, because their businesses can drift. In the wrong direction and they may need to pivot may need to do things differently so that's absolutely critical
0: yeah i have been in the communications business long enough to know that when one of the people you're talking to says and now we've come full circle this is probably a good time to land the plane so uh listener we're going to uh, wrap up this episode of beyond the crucible and i'm going to do what i do at the end of every episode, and that is to pull what I think are three good takeaways from the conversation between uh, Dr. Bataraco and Warwick. Uh, One would be from the book, Leading Quietly, but also seeping into, leading into Step Back, and that is don't fall in love with action and adrenaline. It's the quiet moments that provide the fuel to great insight and understanding that can then lead and fuel great leadership especially in the crisis of a crucible experience. Quiet, reflective leadership is character-driven leadership. That's takeaway one, I think. Takeaway two is that when it comes to reflection, and I don't know that we use a phrase here in this discussion, but Joe uses it in the book, aim for good enough. Find what works for you. Embrace mosaic reflection. Find the time when you can do it and then do it often. Maybe you can't get away on a mountaintop retreat, but you can put your feet up on your desk and ponder the issues raised by your crucible experience and raised by your general experience in business. And then uh, the third point, and I think both Warwick and Joe hit on this in their conversation back and forth, is that reflection is an exercise in continual refinement. Reflect to gather information, assimilate that information, and then reflect on that information that you've assimilated. Uh, It's almost like a sculpture when you think about it. The more you refine the clay, the more your vision takes place and the thing that you're trying to bring to life comes into focus. We hope, listener, that you've uh, enjoyed and that you've gleaned some uh, helpful tips from our conversation with Dr. Joseph Badoraco today. Uh, we thank you for tuning in. Warwick and I would ask you to do uh, a favor for us. Uh, if you see on the podcast where you can click subscribe, please do. You can also leave a review for us on the app where you listen. Again, those things help The uh, podcast, Reach More People, and that's what Warwick's Heart is, to reach the widest audience of people, cast the biggest net to reach the widest audience of people, to help them along the path to a life of significance. So until we're together next time, thank you, listener, for spending your time with us today. We hope that we've given you some stuff here in our conversation that you can reflect on as you go through your own uh, journey In navigating your crucible experience. And remember, in that crucible experience, in that crucible moment, it is painful. It can change the trajectory of your life and it can feel like it's the end of your story in some sense. Here's the good news. Warwick's proof of it. Guests we've had on the show have been proof of it. You're going to be proof of it. A crucible experience is not the end of your story. It can, in fact, be the beginning of a new chapter in your story that can lead to the most rewarding book of your life, because that story, that book, that journey leads to something extremely special, and that is a life of significance.